Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. We also have a wonderful guest on with us tonight, Carol Swain. I've heard about Carol Swain for a long time. I don't generally ever read a biography, but I read about her, and I just wanted you to hear something about the beginnings of her life. This is unusual for me. Generally, I jump right at the topic, but I think you need to know a little bit about her uh, before you hear from her. Carol Swain was born in Bedford, Virginia, second of 12 children. Her father dropped out of school in the third grade. Her mother dropped out in high school. Her stepfather physically abused her mother, who was disabled due to polio. Carol grew up in poverty, living in a shack without running water and sharing two beds with 11 siblings. She did not have shoes and thus missed school whenever it snowed. She did not finish high school, dropping out in the ninth grade. She moved to Roanoke, Virginia with her family in the 1960s and appealed to a judge to be transferred to a foster home, which was denied. Carol Swain instead lived with her grandmother in a trailer park. She went on then to earn her GED, worked as a cashier at McDonald's, a door-to-door salesperson, and an assistant in a retirement facility. She later earned her associate degree, that's a two-year degree, from Virginia Western Community College. She went on to earn her baccalaureate degree, magna cum laude, in criminal justice from Roanoke College, and a master's degree in political science from Virginia Tech. While an undergraduate at Roanoke College, she organized a scholarship fund for black students that was endowed with quite a bit of money to help other students, like in her situation, so they could go to college. She finished her PhD, Doctorate of Philosophy in Political Science, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1989. In 2000, she earned another master's degree, a master's of legal studies from Yale Law School. She went on to become a professor at Princeton University and then a professor at Vanderbilt. Carol, this is a, or Dr. Swain, I should say, this is an astounding story. What you have accomplished, we stand, frankly, we stand in awe of you. But I'm going to allow Frank the privilege of introducing you a little bit more and setting up what you're going to talk about. And then Frank will talk to us about a very, very critical call to action or we must contact our senators very soon. But first, Frank, take a little further with introducing Carol Swain for us. Thank you. Frank? Frank, you're uh, you're muted right now. Uh, Zoom does that, and I don't know why, but thank you very much for calling it to my attention. Um, I'm very proud to uh, be on this program with a woman that I've come to consider both uh, an incredible inspiration in my own life, but also a friend. Uh, She is uh, from the most humble of beginnings, as uh, Pastor Garlow has just described, as well as a woman of great accomplishment, overcoming all of the hardships that uh, life could throw in one's way. Uh, she has a PhD from the University of Northern uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, a master's SL in uh, Yale University. Uh, she had early tenure at Princeton University and a full professorship at Vanderbilt University. 
uh, in both political science and law. She has had three presidential appointments, including as a commissioner of the 1776 Commission uh, under President Trump. She has written 11 books, and that does not count a new one, which I think she may make mention of. Uh, I believe the most recent of them is Black Eye for America, how CRT is taking down, burning down the house. Um, another book that I think is particularly relevant, uh, I'm sure, to this audience is uh, Countercultural Living, What Jesus Has to Say About Life, Marriage, Race, Gender, and Materialism. Uh, her nonprofit is Be the People, and we've asked her to join us today to talk a little bit about, especially drawing upon her own insights in what this land of opportunity enables someone with the kind of drive and uh, talent and capability that she has to succeed and to speak specifically about the subject of, uh, as I mentioned, Black Eye for America, critical race theory and the kind of fundamental transformation of America that Barack Obama talked about and has brought to bear, I think, in uh, what I think of as the three terms of his presidency now under the uh, the Biden presidency in the third. Um, Carol Swain, I, we're so pleased to have you with us. You did a wonderful job on a webinar we did on Friday with uh, the Committee on the Present Danger China. I'm going to say more about that shortly, but um, thank you for joining us, and the floor is yours, ma'am. Thank you, and I do believe that my background is relevant and Jim, you read the Wikipedia version, uh, and it's impossible to make corrections with, with uh, Wikipedia. My plan is to have a memoir next year that will tell the story um, without the filter and the things that Wikipedia does. And I was born and raised uh, uh, in abject poverty in Southwestern Virginia, one of 12, dropped out of school after completing the eighth grade married at 16, and by the time I was 21, I had three small children. A couple of people uh, entered my life. Uh, one was a medical doctor, and uh, I would later learn, maybe about five years ago, that he was uh, 25 when I was 20. He was a devout Catholic. I didn't know that at the time, but he told me I was intelligent, I was attractive, I could do more for my life. And at that time, I was depressed, I was suicidal, and so his words uh, helped change my life. And then there was an African orderly at a nursing home that told me I was uh, smarter than a lot of people he went to college with, I ought to go to college. And so it says a lot about the power of words to change lives. And I can tell you that despite the poverty I grew up in, I did not get messages at home about uh, being a victim or about racism. The messages that I heard was, that I lived, I mean, I knew that I lived in the greatest country in the world. I mean, that that's what I felt, that's what I believed. And, um, and I always heard that if you worked hard and you got an education, you could make something out of yourself. And so when I dropped out of school, I dropped out because of circumstances that were beyond my control. Uh, and when I married early, and I had no idea that the opportunities would open up for me to get an education and have the life I have today. But I can tell you that as a child, I knew that I was different. I always had a sense that there was something I was supposed to do. 
And in my late teens, early 20s, I had strangers come up to me to say, someday, do you know someday you're going to be famous? And there was nothing that I was doing at the time that any of that made sense to me. Uh, I was just a person that was trapped in a situation. And so when I think about my life and what God did in, did in my life, uh, I'm astonished. And most people wouldn't believe that I was crippled by shyness most of my life. I had a conversion experience in my 40s. While I was at Princeton, uh, that God took away my fear of speaking. And this was as I was leaving Princeton. So that's a little bit of the backstory. I can tell you that at Princeton, I got early tenure. It never crossed my mind that I wouldn't. I won three national prizes. My first book's been cited by the US Supreme Court. I was a hot shot, I was miserable. And that's what put in motion the things that led to my Christian conversion experience. I've been a devout believer ever since. And people ask me why I'm courageous. Uh, I think that any courage I have comes from the fact that I know that my life is not about me, that my life is much bigger than me, that my life is about Christ. And I believe that God has called me to speak truth. And that's what I try to do. Uh, and if I get it wrong, I try to correct it. So that's the backstory. Now, as far as affirmative action, because you can't talk about CRT and DEI without talking about affirmative action, uh, I can say that I grew up in a an, an, an affirmative action infused world because I started um, 1960s. That was when the executive orders were signed by Kennedy and by Johnson. And then later, you know, by Nixon, early 70s. And so affirmative action has been around all of my life. But the affirmative action that I was familiar with, that if I benefited from it, I would say I benefited from the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, the non-discrimination, the equal opportunity, the outreach, the recruitment. While at the community college, I took remedial math. And I started at a community college. I worked my way up to better colleges and universities, but I was never in a situation where I was struggling. I was always excelling. Had I been going through school uh, today, I believe that there would have been opportunities and pressures for me to end up in places where I didn't belong. I would have flunked out because if I'm not doing well, I stop. I mean, I, I can't be in an environment. If, I'm, if I can't do it, then I'm gone. And so I think a lot of people, a lot of minorities and maybe a majority group members as well, if you get in a situation where you really don't belong because you're not prepared, I think it leads to failure when you could have been successful if you had been placed in the right situation. So I think that equal opportunity, outreach, non-discrimination, that is something that most Americans agree with. And that affirmative action initially opened the door for a lot of people. And I would say, if it opened the door for me, I had an equal opportunity to succeed or fail. You got into colleges and universities, but once you got there, it was easy to flunk out and a lot of people did. And what has changed is diversity is no longer about the outreach, bringing people in, 
uh, giving them an opportunity to integrate themselves into a situation. No, now it's about groups, bringing in members of, of, of particular groups, encouraging them to form subgroups, a little affinity groups, little tribal groups. Uh, they're not integrating themselves in the situation. They are encouraged uh, to be part of an inclusion effort, which means you include the groups, not the individuals. And then equity is about equal outcomes. You show up, you belong to the group, you're a victim, you deserve something. That is not what I experienced. That's not what affirmative action or the civil rights movement was initially supposed to be about. It changed. It changed in a way that I believe has been very destructive for our society. And so I was one of the people that celebrated when the Supreme Court uh, at the end of June struck down race-based affirmative action because it clearly violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. And because it violated the, the Constitution and the civil rights laws, it needed to go because it was encouraging something that our nation reached a consensus in the 1960s about what kind of country we wanted to be. We decided that we were going to strive towards colorblindness. Uh, we're not doing that. We have not been doing it for some time. And so affirmative action needed to go, but so does DEI because DEI is not about uh, recruitment and of people from underserved populations. It's all about groups. It's all about uh, equal outcomes and not equal opportunity. And what it's doing is hurting our nation. And unfortunately, it affects every sector of our society. You see the, um, the rise of the DEI officers in just about every industry. And when we talk about the US military, I mean, that's the last place where you would want today's DEI. Equal opportunity, recruitment, whatever we were doing uh, initially, I think that was fine. But what we're doing today is that we're trying to have proportional representation, standards are being lowered, and the goal of social engineering seems to replace the goal of, um, of just bringing people in to become part of a team, to become part of a mission, to become part of a vision, to do their jobs well, and to be bigger than you know, their identities, to be part of that team, that has been lost. What is happening, and now I move to CRT, critical race theory, this critical race theory, which now is a layer, I would argue, over top of old-fashioned affirmative action, and the DEI uh, is, a, is imposed over it, what has happened with um, CRT and DEI, it has become so aggressive that it doesn't even give lip service to the Civil Rights Act and to, uh, to the Constitution. And it has to go for the same reasons that affirmative action in higher education was struck down. Uh, affirmative action as practice in these industries as DEI, that needs to go too. And, and I do have a book that will be released next month, I believe August 15th, that's the release date. It's titled, The Adversity of Diversity, How Real Unity Training Can Promote Healing in a Post-Affirmative Action World. 
My hope is that the constitution and the laws will be enforced and that we will have a post-affirmative action world. And I believe it will be a better world because we will not have the divisiveness and we will not have people that their job is to keep groups at each other's throats. Uh, DEI and CRT, critical race theory, as it's being practiced uh, in America and, and across the world, is very uh, conflict-based because it grows out of Marxism and grows out of cultural Marxism. And the whole idea is to destroy and to keep groups at each other's throats. And under CRT, critical race theory, whites are always considered the oppressors. Uh, white people are said to have a property interest in their whiteness. We hear the argument that only white people can be racist and that only white people have to commit themselves to anti-racism. Uh, minorities are told that they're victims regardless of the socioeconomic status of their parents. Their parents could be millionaires or billionaires. Uh, they are told that they are victims and that racism is permanent. And because racism is permanent, there's really nothing that you can do to end something that's supposed to be permanent. And the most dangerous thing that's taken place is that CRT uh, has seeped down into the K through 12 educational realm. And what I have witnessed over the years is that CRT has been around certainly ever since I've been in uh, academia. Yes, um, it's been around since the 1970s. So ever since I've been in academia, but before it was in the philosophy departments, political science, uh, you know, the humanities. What happened during the Obama administration, and maybe it started before that, we saw it spread into every uh, uh, department of the university. And it came to rest in departments of education. And we saw something, um, saw it become very aggressive. And then after um, George Floyd's death, we saw how, how corporations and other organizations raced to infuse uh, DEI into their programs. And fortunately, right now, it seems that they're trying to undo it because it's created so much disruption. What it does is that it creates hostility uh, among members of the majority group. They find themselves beaten up and minorities uh, tend to often become angry because they believe that they would have been further along if they were not victims of systemic racism. So I've talked longer than 10 minutes. But um, that's pretty much what I wanted to share with you. That's uh, that's superb, uh, Dr. Slane. Thank you so much for your sharing. Uh, Frank, I'm going to go right to you to cue off of that and tell us what is coming before the United States Senate that we need to be aware of. Uh, thank you, Jim. Um, and we have a PowerPoint slide deck that I'd like to just go through very quickly. And uh, I, I think that... Uh, Carol has set up the conversation perfectly with her insights into cultural Marxism and what it does to institutions, including now, I'm sorry to say, very much uh, the United States military. We're going to talk a little bit about General C.Q. Brown. Frank, can you just pause one moment? Cultural Marxism, define that term for our listeners. 
cultural mark we they understand marxism in general but this is cultural marxism can you give us flesh that out for us a little bit sure uh, and carl's an expert on this so I, i'll just do a very quick run through and she can complement it afterwards perhaps um it, it's basically the technique that uh mao zedong used to destroy opposition to him interestingly enough within the chinese communist party at a point where it had become restive under his stewardship and he uh, weaponized basically the youth of his country to destroy his political opponents um, by exactly the techniques that carol's just talked about dividing uh people in that case uh, along class lines but it lends itself to using race as effectively to conquer divide and conquer and uh i'll just go through a little bit of how this is can being I, done I, that? I just want to say very very quickly is that the disciples of Karl marx when they saw that uh, economic marxism failed they were trying to figure it out they uh decided that it was um the culture the western civilization that stood in the way and what they uh, came up with was a long-term strategy. They infiltrated every institution in America. And so what you see happening in the military, in the educational realm, in the churches, uh, the Catholic church was one of the first to be infiltrated. That was part of the Marxist strategy because they wanted to change the people first, then they could change the culture, and then they could change the nation. Thank you. Superb. Um, so General C.Q. Brown, just so I'll go through this very quickly, if you can go back to the slide deck, please, um, is a four-star Air Force general who is currently, next slide, please, uh, the chief of staff of the United States Air Force. Uh, next slide, please. He uh, has uh, been nominated by President Biden to become the nation's top military officer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Next slide, please. Uh, after a pretty much pro forma hearing last week um, before the Senate Armed Services Committee, he was uh, recommended for confirmation uh, by the Senate, by the committee. Uh, that vote is pending now and will probably take place this week. Uh, next slide, please. Um, consequently, if on the basis of what we've uh, discussed thus far and, and uh, will momentarily, you want your senators to vote against this nomination, uh, which I strongly recommend, we need you to act very quickly. And we're going to talk in the action item section about how you can do that. The good news is uh, this general has a background of service to our country uh, as a combat pilot. Uh, he has had command positions uh, in uh, most of our major regional commands around the world. Uh, next slide, please. The bad news is that he has been imbued with the philosophy, with the uh, woke uh, ideology, if you will, of the radical left. Uh, particularly that's been evident in some of his recent postings, including the one he is in now as the chief of staff of the Air Force. Uh, next slide, please. Examples of how this manifests itself in terms of his own personal predilections and what he has been directing the Air Force to do. Critical race theory, yes. Uh, the indoctrination in it, 
and purges of those who are not with the program. Um, replacing merit, and this is something implicit in much of what Carol Swain just talked about, uh, her life is a testament to merit and opportunity based on merit. So has been the United States military for decades. And yet now it is being afflicted with this idea that no, 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 there need to be uh, quotas uh, based on race and race and ethnicity uh, along the lines of this diversity, equity, and inclusion business. Uh, in addition, he has been a, a strong uh, supporter of this idea of transgender accommodations in the military, um, uh, compulsory vaccine jabs with the COVID uh, vaccines, which have been very problematic, as you probably know, um, especially for healthy folks of the military age cohort. Uh, and there have been other social engineering uh, agendas that have also been advanced by him and to varying degrees uh, in the other services as well. And a damage assessment, next slide, is that these have been devastating to uh, the military as we've seen the division and the conquest playing out in real time. Next slide. Let me give you some examples. Forgive me for the using the highlighting, but uh, just to try to get some of these ideas across in the short time we have. Examples of what General Brown has as Chief of Staff of the Air Force um, been doing, as well as have others uh, under the Biden administration, strong advocacy of this cultural Marxist agenda in the military is destroying unit cohesion by dividing people along racial uh, lines, pitting them against one another, as Carol said. This is absolutely antithetical to what the military has to do. Um, training resources are limited inherently as is the time available to do training and it's being squandered on diversity and pronouns and the like, rather than training people to fight the nation's wars. Um, in his uh, confirmation hearing, the general was asked about a young female National Guardswoman from South, South Dakota, who in basic training and was finally compelled to say that she was very, very uneasy about having men who have been so-called identifying as female but are fully intact, sharing her bunk space, sharing her showers and the like. And the general's response was simply, well, we need to manage the discomfort level there. This is not consistent with uh, actually having a functioning military. Politicizing the military, uh, you see manifested uh, day in and day out. Uh, and we can talk more about that if we have time. Um, degrading readiness and deterrence is the thing that is most concerning here, because as uh, we should keep in mind, I believe we are at the cusp of war, not uh, the unrestricted pre-kinetic kind as uh, the Chinese Communist, po Communist Party calls it, but the shooting kind of war. Deterrence must be everything we can make it be and our readiness to fight the wars similarly. Bottom line, 
morale is being crushed in the United States Armed Forces today as a direct result of this woke business. Um, we have a meme that sort of captures the idea. Uh, this is, of course, not General Brown, but um, it is Karl Marx in General Brown's uniform, and I think that's what we're contending with. Let me just go quickly through another set of points that uh, are relevant here. Uh, whatever one thinks of all of this uh, cultural Marxism and uh, that agenda, I believe it should be sufficient to disqualify him for this job of chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But so are other aspects of his performance as chief of staff of the Air Force. Next slide. Um, the Heritage Foundation, I know, is held in high regard by all of us. Uh, they do a, an absolutely stupendous service to the country in what they call their annual index of U.S. military strength. Um, in 2021, after General Brown's first year as the Air Force Chief of Staff, Heritage rated the Air Force as, quote, marginal in terms of its military capabilities. The second year, 2022, they considered it to be actually weak. This year, their index says the Air Force is very weak. What does that mean? Next slide. Um, a couple of examples from the Heritage's analysis. It's dreadfully short of pilots. And some of what General Brown's talking about is actually going to be compounding that problem because he thinks there ought to be a quota on the number of white pilots, male pilots uh, in the Air Force. 46%, uh, he says, which would mean they'd have to get rid of quite a number of those that are still in the cockpit. Um, the average age of our equipment, now some of this is not entirely the general's fault, but some of it I think frankly is, is now 32 years old. Pilots are not having time to train or the resources to train in the cockpit. Uh, some of that can be offset by simulators, yes, but there's no substitute for the actual flying time. And that means we have a less than ready force. In fact, half of the F-15 elements, which are still frontline fighters, uh, we've got some F-35s and F-22s, yes, but not enough. It's, we're still relying on the F-15s and they're just not ready. Um, and finally, many of them are being retired even though there are no replacements for them. And again, this is at the time when we may well find ourselves in conflict and they will de be, be desperately needed, particularly in the Pacific. Next slide, please. Another meme. I think this is frankly, no exaggeration. If Joe Biden is seeking the destruction of the United States military, he could not be doing more in that regard than what he is doing right now. Uh, you can throw into the mix, uh, sending a lot of equipment to Ukraine as well. Um, and again, the really bad news is all of this is taking place at a time when we may well need that military to be in prime form. Next slide. Uh, I fear that what is taking place, therefore, is not just reckless. It is potentially catastrophic to our country, and it raises to the absolute pinnacle of importance, trying, if we can, to avoid having a general officer as the top military man in uniform, who is, uh, I think, uh, charitably 
embracing this agenda, political agenda, as well as uh, demonstrating uh, a certain lack of competence as uh, the top guy should have. Uh, finally, and I'll conclude with this uh, appropriately enough, I believe that, next slide please, um, as an action item, yes, we need to get in touch with senators, uh, but we need to get in touch with the Lord. Um, we have, I think, with his help, uh, a very high probability of success in saving our country from what is afoot here. Uh, without it, I'm not so sure, but uh, we need to uh, enlist his grace if we possibly uh, can be deserving of it yet. Uh, despite our many shortcomings. Um, the bottom line is, if I may just conclude by saying, um, at rejectgeneralbrown.org, there is what's called an Align Act campaign that allows you very easily, very quickly to get in touch with your senators and encourage them to vote against General Brown's nomination. We need the uh, the multiplied voices of people like you to be heard in the next day or two. So I encourage you to go to rejectgeneralbaron.org. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, Alan, pull up the slide with a picture of Karl Marx in the uh, in the military uniform, because I believe the website was there listed on the across the bottom. It is. And so people can visually see it here for just a moment. You can bring that up, Alan, rejectgeneralbaron.org. Uh, there it is. So you can see it's kind of a jolting picture. Uh, obviously, it has a lot of impact. Uh, so the, the vote is this. Did you say it's this week? I don't think we've got a date certain yet. Uh, they're in the middle of debating the National Defense Authorization uh, Act. And uh, I think they'll probably tuck it in uh, at some point early this week would be my guess, because I think they're going to try to finish up uh, action on that bill by Tuesday. Well, each of you listening, assuming you're in the United States, you each have two senators. So contact their offices. This does have impact. This is critical. Carol, anything, Dr. Swain, rather, anything you want to add to what has been said by, um, by Frank Gaffney? No, I mean, uh, other than to say that the, the U.S. military suffers from mission creep, that it is no longer about defending uh, American citizens from domestic and foreign threats, that they have lost their way. The whole world can see it. And America's enemies, I can think of no better time to attack. Uh, they're so diverted, you know, with their social engineering, with transgenderism and their proportional representation. Uh, we have to be the laughing stock of the world. What, uh, Ned, Ned Merriman, come on, what question would you have? For either Dr. Swain or for uh, Frank Gaffney, Ned. Yeah, I, for really for either of you, and, and both. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, really appreciate the presentation of and uh, Dr. Swain. Have followed some of your work in the in the past and appreciate it greatly. Thanks. So my question is for for those who are looking to seemingly balkanize or atomize the U.S. military through cultural Marxism, and of course we've seen this in many government institutions. Uh, what is their actual end goal, in your opinion? I believe it's the destruction of America. I don't believe they care about Black people, brown people, gay people, 
that it's not about uh, these groups that they have weaponized, that it's about the takedown of the United States of America. And I'm going to say something, and, and it may sound extreme, but I feel in many ways America has already fallen to China, that we just don't know it. It seems like uh, our government, at least uh, under Biden, they seem very subservient to China. And I have argued that this Ukraine conflict, I believe that the only, only beneficiary of a war between the U.S. and Russia is China. They walk away as the world power and that they've been egging it on. And we don't seem to have any leadership that looks after the U.S. interests. And I just I, say quickly, I, I couldn't agree more with what Carol said. Just one further point. The Chinese Communist Party uh, has friends in our country. In fact, this is the subtitle of our new book, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. It is the cultural Marxists within the United States, and Carol did a better job than I of giving the lineage of those guys going back to the 30s, really, the Frankfurt School and so on. But in addition, you have, of course, the influence operations that the Chinese Communist Party has been waging, and she's absolutely right. If we're not completely gone, we're fairly far down the tubes, which is why I go back to that point about praying, and who better to say that to than this group? We need God's help to get back from the brink, but it starts with us doing what we can do as well, and it's absolutely critical that we understand the magnitude of the peril we're in from these enemies, foreign and domestic. One other thing I'd like to say, since it is, you know, a Christian group, this is a prayer, uh, a praying group, I would urge everyone to read Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's the chapter that talks about the uh, blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience if we believe God judges nations, then the United States would be very much in a period where it looks like judgment. And I think that if you read uh, the curses for disobedience, it's very sobering. And at times, you know, I believe that America will fall uh, to China. At one time, I would say China or Russia, but it seems to me China has outmaneuvered Russia. Russia because it has the U.S. and almost the whole world, it seems, uh, focused on taking Russia out, that leaves China. And China, in many ways, uh, to me, it seems far more evil than what I've seen from Russia. And I'm not a, a specialist in foreign policy. I'm just someone that has observed as a political scientist. But I can tell that China is the only beneficiary from the Ukrainian conflict. Amen. Oh, very, very insightful. Uh, Dr. Swing, your reference to judgment. I, I, I was speaking at Gary Hamrick's church, Cornerstone Church in Leesburg, Virginia, right there in the shadows of uh, the Beltway, Washington, D.C., Wednesday night. And he turned to me and asked me a question in the interview about that. And I said, I think we have moved from discipline of America to judgment is now falling on America. It's interesting, uh, there's a left-wing group that monitors this call, monitors everything a bunch of us do. That's the one thing they picked up on, and they ran it, and they helped spread the word for me. So I want to say thank you to that left-wing group for getting the word out, a warning. This is a warning 
that America has moved into a season of judgment. We've moved beyond discipline. There's evidences of judgment falling. Uh, Dr. Dr. Swain, if you wouldn't mind, would you lead us in prayer first? We have a number of adults that are going to lead in prayer. Um, but I'd like to, uh, Dr. Swain to lead us in prayer if she would. And then we're going to have a, a calming hymn, which is really needed. And, and then you've got to stay to the end. We've got Ashley Hyatt coming on next. She's remarkable. And then a, a, a musical finale like you're not going to believe. 110 orchestra, a piece orchestra uh, with our brother who's on here, who's going to be singing. So let's go first of all, uh, Dr. Swain, with you leading us in prayer. And then uh, Mark Murphy, be prepared to unmute in the moment I want to introduce you. Dr. Swain, could you lead us in prayer? Okay, but before I start, there in Jeremiah, there came a time when God told Jeremiah not to pray for this nation. Don't even lift up a prayer. I will not hear you. And for years, I told people there's still hope for America. I've not heard any of the prayer warriors say that God has spoken to them and told them not to pray for America. I can't say that today because I ran into several people that said that God told them to stop praying for America. And so I don't know where we are before God, but we have done everything to be under God's judgment. So I will pray. Father God, I thank you that you know all things. And I thank you, Lord, there's nothing uh, that's been said tonight uh, that would surprise you. And I thank you, Lord, that you know our hearts and you know, Father, how much we love America. And Father, we know that all nations are imperfect, but nations were your idea. You were the one that came up with nation states and sovereign nations. And Father, I pray, Father, for uh, forgiveness, forgiveness for the leaders, um, for all of us, Lord, and just how we've often been misled, we've made mistakes. And at this time, Lord, we're uncertain about what to do. But we know that you told um, uh, your you told the Israelites that when they were in Babylon, that they should pray for the welfare of the nation that they're in. And if that nation prospered, prospered they would prosper. And so, Lord, right now, we lift up a prayer uh, to you for the people of America. And, Lord, we ask Almighty God that for mercy. We deserve judgment, but we want mercy, Almighty God. And we ask that, uh, Lord, that you would begin to turn the tables, Lord, on America's enemies. And, Father, we know that you have exposed the hidden things. We've seen the great evil, Lord, but we have not seen uh, it adjudicated. We've not seen justice, Almighty God. We see the evil con continually, the evildoers continually get away with the evil. And Lord, we still come before you just praying for that mercy and praying that um, you would uh, fight the battle. We pray, Almighty God, that uh, somehow there would be a miracle, that there would be revival in America. We pray, Lord, that just somehow Lord, that there would be a solution that would come through you. And Lord, we pray that if it's judgment and we're to go through this, Lord, that you would empower each of us, Lord, to be strong until the very end, that we'd not cave, we would not um, fall to fear because we, we've seen how the enemy used fear uh, during 9-11 and also during COVID. We don't know what will come next. But I pray, Lord, that we would not fall victim to fear, 
uh, that we would not uh, love our lives to the point, Lord, that we would compromise. We pray that we would love you. And Lord, I pray for everyone that's listening on this prayer call, even for those that are listening for nefarious reasons, Lord, I just pray that you would bless them. I pray, Almighty God, that you would uh, bless what is left that's righteous in our nation and that you would raise up people with courage, Almighty God. You'd raise up people within the Democratic Party that would say no more, no more, no more. They would stand up and just draw the line. And Father, we pray that the U.S. military would be saved. We pray, Almighty God, that the Congress would be purged, Almighty God. We pray, Almighty God, that the church would be purged, Almighty God. We pray, Almighty God, for a miracle, even knowing that there is a time when you say no more. It's time for judgment. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.